Welcome to the latest installment of Paradigm Shifts, the official podcast of the National Foundation of Emergency Medicine. The purpose of this podcast is to create visibility for young and soon-to-be prolific academic emergency physicians by highlighting their research and their vision for the field. We hope to introduce these ideas to you, the listener, and to expand and maybe even redirect your thinking toward the forefront of both the science and the philosophy of emergency medicine. Today, Dr. Peter Rosen and I are joined by Dr. Michael Philbin. Dr. Philbin is an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. He is heavily involved in medical student and resident education, as well as clinical research with a focus on sepsis and septic shock, including uh, his work during the process trial. Uh, Dr. Philbin, welcome. Hello, Aaron and Peter. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Very nice to have you. So, With all of your research that you've kind of done in sepsis, we're going to be talking about three paradigms related to the management of sepsis and septic shock in the emergency department. The first one that you propose is it is a myth that sepsis is usually obvious upon ED presentation. The second one is that clinical concern for infection is a key ingredient to an effective early identification rule for sepsis and one that has not been addressed in the literature or in the sepsis guidelines. Guidelines. And the third one is that septic patients that present with vague symptoms, those not pointing to infection, have a much higher mortality than those with explicit symptoms of infection. And this is not due to higher severity of illness or delayed antibiotic administration, but likely represents an important clinical phenotype that may be less responsive to antibiotic therapy. I think these are great things to kind of discuss, and I'm eager to kind of get your opinion on how you came about these. Could you tell us a bit about how you became interested in the area of research regarding sepsis? Sure. Well, when I thought about this, I kind of, you know, went back to the, I guess, the last 20 years of sepsis care and, and research. And I, I was thinking about, you know, some of the uh, the sentinel events um, in the, you know, the sepsis landscape. I guess probably the first sentinel event is really the the advent of antibiotics a long long time ago, um, you know, to help prevent sepsis. But but really the second one, and I can't really speak to much that that occurred, you know, back in the 20th century. But but the Rivers trial back in in 2001, which really made it clear to the world that that sepsis you know was an emergency department condition and and one that that needed to be recognized and treated aggressively uh, in the ED and and that aggressive treatment did reduce uh, mortality pretty drastically the thing is though the rivers protocol used invasive hemodynamic monitoring through a special central venous catheter you know, to measure central venous pressure and, and central venous oxygen saturation, titrating crystalloids, vasopressors, and inotropic therapies. So for the next decade, we were really left wondering, you know, whether it was, you know, the greater attention paid to sepsis. Was it, you know, us more aggressively resuscitating these patients or the invasive monitoring that, that made the difference in the outcomes? And, uh, you know, over those 10 years, there was a handful of sepsis champions around the U.S. uh, that instituted the Full Rivers Protocol in their emergency departments, and it it led to a reduction in in mortality in before and after studies. So the the third kind of, you know, landmark event, I think, in the, the sepsis world was the process trial. And, you know, this multi center study 
aim to validate the rivers protocol with with the invasive monitoring versus protocolized therapy that did not use invasive monitoring kind of versus what what the usual care was uh, at, at that time and and that was about what seven or eight years i think after after um rivers was published so some time had elapsed so essentially you know in, in the, the process trial there there ended up being no mortality difference between between the three arms and and on the heels of process there was the arise trial and the promise trial that basically showed exactly the same thing so altogether over 3700 patients prospectively studied showing no benefit of protocolized care really with or without invasive monitoring over what we were already doing in emergency departments at the time so you know in these studies by the time the patients were enrolled, which was a median of two hours after triage, it seemed like the specifics of the resuscitation really didn't matter at that point. So to speak, the cat was out of the bag. So this really shifted the focus of you know sepsis research into the kind of identification phase of what's going on in the first couple hours uh, in the emergency department really as an opportunity to initiate aggressive care earlier in order to achieve you know mortality benefits so how i got interested in sepsis was really kind of in the time between between the rivers trial and, and process you know when the the septic patients still played second fiddle to the three big diseases we tended to focus on in the emergency department being trauma, STEMI, and stroke. And I noticed that uh, the, the, the septic patient was kind of, you know, a back room somewhere in the emergency department with, you know, low blood pressure, seemingly super sick and relatively ignored when, you know, everybody else was getting excited about the next trauma to hit the front door. So in looking at the mortality of trauma, you know, STEMI and stroke that ranged between 5 and 15 percent, you know, sepsis mortality ranged between 25 and 35 percent. So I initially got involved in research by enrolling in the process trial itself. And in the end of the trial, you know, our site was the third highest enrolling center in the study. And I'm still involved in clinical trials, you know, currently involved in the PEDAL network, which is a joint critical care EM collaboration. Uh, and we're enrolling in Clovers, which is a trial of liberal versus uh, conservative fluid resuscitation and septic shock. But my own research is really focused on this early identification phase of sepsis. I mean, trying to identify patients who are at risk for sepsis early on in the emergency department. Yeah, we're doing the Clover trial as well here at the University of Arizona, and just even having the uh, research component is making people identify sepsis as early as they can because everyone is trying to enroll for the study. So I, I think that's the most difficult thing is making sure that you can identify sepsis early. I tell a lot of our residents and our students that we work with, we say recognition is everything in the emergency department. If you can't recognize it, you can't start them on the correct pathway for treatment and hopefully prevention of all the complications. Sepsis is, we used to see it, which is the patient that was hypotensive, uh, altered, poor capillary refill with an obvious fever of 104 and a bacterial source that was evident on 
chest x-ray, that's not most of what we see. And your first paradigm is basically that that uh, sepsis is not something that is always obvious. It's not something that can be picked up from a quick five-second look from the door necessarily. Yeah, I think I re- recently realized this uh, and maybe, you know, working more more with uh, you know inpatient colleagues but I think the assumption is that you know this disease is you know relatively straightforward to diagnose it's usually apparent at triage in the emergency department I mean I thought about this a little bit more and you know practicing that didn't seem to be the case I mean it it seems like there there are often difficulties in making this diagnosis and thinking that sepsis is a syndrome and it really comprises of two components, and the first one is a suspicion for infection, and the second one is is organ dysfunction. And you really have to have the combination of those two things to to have sepsis. So, you know, as emergency physicians, we're really, you know, making two diagnoses: is this patient infected? Number two, do they have organ dysfunction? And, you know, is the organ dysfunction related to the infection? Because we know a lot of these patients have, have baseline o- organ dysfunction. So it's, it's often difficult, um, in my opinion, to, to diagnose. I think that's a great delineation between the patient that comes in and says, you know, I have an abscess that's on my antecube and the patient that comes in with a fever and myalgias and signs of more of a systemic infection with an abscess in my antecube. I think that's that's probably the one, again, that should be easier to pick up. But, you know, that uh, that delineation of has it actually progressed from a localized infection to more of a systemic infection with end organ dysfunction, that's that's really where the uh, rubber meets the road as far as us being able to mitigate a lot of the secondary outcomes of sepsis by early intervention. Absolutely. And, and you know, kind of boiling down, you know, the suspicion for infection and organ dysfunction to, to really, you know, to the extreme, we, we really tend to focus on, you know, the presence of fever to, to denote, denote infection and, and hypotension to denote the organ dysfunction part of sepsis. So when we really focus on those two things, you know, you're going to miss a lot of the spectrum of what actually uh, is sepsis. I've been impressed over time at how much the early presentation of one disease looks like another. And the non-specific symptoms for sepsis are no different than the non-specific symptoms for for STEMI in females. And it is critical that we figure out a way to identify these people while they are still therapy respondent. Because I think that what happens is sepsis is a spectrum of diseases, and there comes a point at which, when it's easy to recognize, it's hard to treat, if not impossible. Yeah, I think you bring up a, this important concept of the uncertainty that we that we practice uh, in, and it really you know does not apply just to sepsis. I tend to think a lot about sepsis, but as you as you say, it applies to other diseases as well. And really what we do as emergency physicians, I think, is we risk stratify. We compartmentalize patients. And for those who could have sepsis or or are at risk for sepsis, that's kind of what I am trying to do in my research is trying to, to help guide the emergency physician how to 
you know, place a population of patients at risk for sepsis. And, and not to say that this patient definitely does have, have sepsis, because a lot of these patients, we, we really never know. And retrospectively, after their hospital course is completed, they've gotten a course of antibiotics, they got better, their cultures were negative. You know, were they ever infected in the first place? You know, a lot of times we just don't know. So we're practicing in uncertainty, and it's really important to be able to risk stratify these patients appropriately with as much precision as possible. The, the patient that's usually the one left up on the board the longest, at least where I work, is the weak or the dizzy patient. Doesn't matter what age. Those are unsatisfying chief complaints usually. And unless they've got something that will narrow you in on why they're weak or why they're dizzy, the workup is variable, the disposition is variable, the management is variable, and it's uh, it's very difficult to pick up some of these more vague uh, presentations of all of these different diseases. So. Uh, Historically, we've kind of gone from SIRS with a with a bacterial source being sepsis, and now QSOFA. Uh, where do you kind of see this progression for identifying sepsis going? Where do you kind of see the the research and the practice going to try to help with an early identification of sepsis? So. Like I said, I think it's important uh, to, to risk stratify, and I think that w- is kind of the, the purpose of, of, to a certain extent, the purpose of SIRS and certainly of, of QSOFA criteria is to you know help clinicians identify a subset of patients who are at risk. The issue with QSOFA specifically is you know it's a, it's a rule that focuses on vital signs essentially. So systolic less than 100, respiratory rate 22 or greater, GCS less than than 15. And, you know, the immediate thing that comes to mind is, well, you know, these are signs of organ dysfunction. We've known for years that patients with organ dysfunction have worse outcomes. You know, is this specific at all to to infection, you know, does this help us answer that first question? Is this patient infected? And absolutely not. I mean, the QSOFA criteria were derived, you know, from a patient population retrospectively that, you know, had a high suspicion for infection. These patients all received antibiotics, they had blood cultures. So basically QSOFA was derived to predict mortality in patients who you already think have infection. It doesn't really help us, you know, differentiate, you know, who does have infection from who does not have infection. And in fact, the majority of patients who are QSOFA positive in the emergency department don't have infection at all. So specificity uh, is a real problem. You know, in order to kind of characterize a little better, you know, you know, difficult it is to to diagnose sepsis initially. You know, we looked at 654 ED patients with septic shock who were admitted uh, to the ICU over one a year period of time. And when I say we, I mean me and my colleagues, uh, Andrew Reisner, EM physician, and uh, Thomas Helt, who's uh, an engineer at MIT and a data scientist. Uh, we're working together. So we found that 
37% of these patients admitted to the ICU with septic shock present with vague symptoms. So, you know, symptoms that would not otherwise point you to infection. And that 50% of patients who we admit to the ICU with septic shock present with a systolic blood pressure of greater than 100. So, the majority of these patients in it, during the initial phases in the ED, you might suspect that they actually don't have sepsis. They have vague symptoms and they have uh, normal blood pressure. So, that just kind of uh, accentuates the difficulty of making this diagnosis up front. Yeah, I had a patient just the other day that came in that had multiple seizures and, of course, flagged our, uh, we have a safe alert uh, kind of looking for sepsis because he had a lactate of nine and he was tachycardic and the nurse's notes that he was poorly responsive. And so immediately it came up, this patient requires antibiotics and requires fluids and lactate. And we said, whoa, 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 hold on. This is kind of an overcall. And yet we also have the undercall of patients that were uncertain have sepsis. And these are the ones that you you know kind of say we should be the most concerned about so kind of getting to that second paradigm that you have that clinical concern for infection is the key ingredient that seems to be one of the more difficult things to nail down as far as quantifying this not just for research purposes but also just for teaching somebody this is what a septic patient and uh, looks like and this is what they don't yeah exactly so so, like I said, Q-SOFA Q criteria, vital signs, okay? So, you're going to have a lot of false positives, uh, patients that, that are, are not infected at all who, who meet Q-SOFA criteria or, you know, any number of the other, you know, criteria, news, muse that, that have been thrown around in the literature and are, are used in, in practice. So... In my mind, what has not been addressed at all is this whole suspected infection part of the, the sepsis definition and how to narrow down from a patient who has you know abnormal vital signs or physiology or some sign of organ dysfunction to the, the patient who is actually inf infected you know, with with vital sign, sign abnormalities or, or organ dysfunction. And this really hasn't been addressed at all. And several years ago, kind of before the, the whole QSOFA craze, you know, our uh, group just sat down and we took a look at a cohort of septic shock patients going to the ICU as 141 patients. And they were all started on vasopressors, so very sick patients. And and we just kind of, you know, took a big picture look at them. We we found that all of them pretty early on in their ED stay had a systolic less than 100 or a shock index greater than 1. So we said, hey, that seems like a pretty sensitive vital sign cr criterion. You know, if your systolic's less than 100, your shock index is greater than 1, you might want to be suspicious. That's going to catch every single one of these patients going to the ICU with, with septic shock. But then we kind of focused on the clinical presentation part of it because obviously if you just use those criteria, you're going to identify you know a lot of patients in the emergency department. So how do you hone down on those that are more likely infected? Well, we found that you know, looking back at the charts, that it seemed that infection was obvious in about 40% of those patients when they arrived in the EDs. So they had a fever, a history of a fever. They had some 
symptom complex that was, you know, obviously pointing towards infection. So we called those patients probable. They're probably infected if you had to guess, you know, uh, on arrival. So we said, if you're probably infected and you meet the vital sign criteria, then you screen positive. Well, we noticed that about 60% of these patients, they presented, like I said, with kind of the vague symptoms, weakness, you know, fatigue, etc. But essentially, all of those patients who presented with, you know, a possible infection, and we're saying possible by it's got to be on your differential. You're going to send a urine. You're going to do a chest X-ray. It's a possibility, but essentially, all those patients presented with what we call a sepsis risk factor. So they were either elderly, 65 or older. They had a significant comorbidity, cancer, immunocompromised, or they were just an extremist. They were clearly very sick. So we kind of packaged this together and called it our you know triage concern for infection rule. So if you met a vital sign criterion, plus you either had probable infection, so it was pretty obvious on presentation, or possible infection, it's on your differential plus a sepsis risk factor, then you screen positive. We called that called that the spot, the spot sepsis rule. And we basically looked at test characteristics of the spot sepsis rule. And as we were deriving this, you know, QSOFA came along as well, and we thought, hey, we can really apply our triage concern for infection rule to QSOFA, which is also a vital signs rule. Don't you think there are infections that don't involve shock, and that those are the infections that are most likely to respond to antibiotics? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And there, there are certainly infections and, and sepsis um, specifically that, that does not involve shock. Now, whether they're more responsive to, to antibiotics, uh, I think uh, it could be debated. And I think the, the third paradigm, we're going to get a little bit into response to, to antibiotics. You know, are, are there a subset of patients who may be more more or less responsive uh, to antibiotics. So I really don't know the answer to your question specifically. And I'm curious, before we get into the third one, Peter, I think uh, the term high index of suspicion is probably one of your least favorite terms that gets thrown around a lot. That's right. Uh, of If you have a high index of suspicion for everything, uh, then everyone is a suspect. And in trying to train some of our residents and trying to train ourselves, honestly, how to have that clinical concern for infection, I think it's, it's all about making sure that these risk factors are honed in and even so much as to say with every patient you just briefly in your mind say could this be sepsis similar to what you think about pulmonary embolism or even child abuse uh, of you have to be suspicious of something with a very high mortality rate uh, especially when you don't really have a clear-cut picture of what's going on well if we look at the history of sepsis, first of all, it's never had a satisfactory definition. And I think that's because of what Mike has pointed out, the confusion between the presence of infection and organ damage. And obviously the patients 
who we see more and more of every day are the elderly who have concomitant diseases that already show organ damage, but is that due to the acute change in their condition? And when antibiotics first came along early in my childhood, they were called miracle drugs. Why? Because they were given for everything, and they worked for some things that nothing had worked for before. So that was kind of a miracle. The, the bad part of the miracle was we never did define who should receive them and when or why. And I think that leads to your third paradigm. Yeah, so the third paradigm is basically that those patients with vague symptoms have a higher mortality rate than those that have obvious symptoms. And so I read that and thought to myself, okay, well, that makes sense because you have vague symptoms. You don't get it recognized early enough. You don't get antibiotics as quickly as you should. Uh, it's a little more subtle or smoldering. But you actually propose that this is a phenotype of sepsis that may actually be less responsive. And I'm eager to hear kind of your description of this uh, this paradigm? Yeah, we were really surprised to find what we found. I mean, you know, we were interested in, you know, in this and defining, you know, presenting symptoms in, in patients who end up having sepsis and septic shock because it's actually never been characterized before. So we thought, you know, how what would be a good way to to dichotomize these presenting symptoms. And we thought, well, you know, the way I, we think about it clinically is either they come in with vague symptoms or they come in with symptoms that are, you know, pr pretty obviously pointing towards infection. So the symptom complex that we considered explicit were, you know, obvious fever, say a productive cough or, or dysuria, or, you know, some combination of symptoms that, that made infection pretty obvious up front uh, versus those that are vague, like we've mentioned, weakness, fatigue, dizziness, uh, malaise, etc. So, so like I said before, 37% of these patients with septic shock had vague symptoms, a pretty high proportion. Then we looked at the mortality difference between those with vague and explicit symptoms, and it was 34% versus 16% pretty drastic difference and like you said Aaron we assumed that you know the, the reason for this would be delays in recognition antibiotics and in fact when we looked at time to antibiotics between the two cohorts there was a difference so those that presented with vague symptoms did get antibiotics in a somewhat delayed fashion however when we did a multivariate logistic regression, that time to antibiotics term dropped out entirely. So it actually did not contribute at all to uh, mortality. You know, we're left with these patients who present in vague ways, and it's it's not because they're they're older or, or more sick and not able to provide a history. It's There's just something inherent about these patients who present with vague symptoms. And of course, you know, a lot of these patients were characterized as vague because they either did not have a history of a fever or they did not present with a fever uh, to the emergency department. So, so really the question is, you know, do these patients, you know, represent kind of a different biological phenotype 
uh, lack of fever, lack of specific symptoms? Are they immune suppressed? You know, that is it a, just a different biologic biological manifestation uh, response to sepsis altogether? And so this may point to something that's actually a host problem more than a pathogen problem. Is that correct? Correct, and 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 maybe even a combination, a combination of you know pathogen host response. Um, and we did, and the the reviewers at Critical Care Medicine did ask us to to look at pathogens because they were wondering if this was uh, perhaps you know in part uh, a pathogen phenomenon and it didn't really seem to matter you know there wasn't a prevalence of one pathogen versus another in, in e- either of the two groups a colleague of of mine um at brigham and women's hospital uh dr ray he he had a cohort of 850 septic patients uh so a, sep- uh, a separate se- a sepsis cohort and he went uh, went ahead and looked uh, again at these patients using the methodology that, that we use for vague versus explicit and he found that in the patients that presented with vague symptoms that there was no effect uh, on time to antibiotics to mortality and and the measure was meeting the, the SEP1 metric so did you receive antibiotics within three hours on the other hand in the patients with explicit infectious symptoms, there was quite a considerable benefit to being compliant with the antibiotic portion of, of the SEP1 uh, measure. So there seems to be some indication here that we're dealing with different subtypes that, that may respond differently to antibiotics. This is a really almost terrifying paper for me because it seems like the patients that have the explicit symptoms and are uh, uh, so much more obvious that those are the ones we need to get a handle on so that we can try to prevent the bad outcomes. But it's actually those weak and dizzy patients that we kind of referenced at the beginning of the podcast are probably the ones we should be running to see first because from what this paper is describing, those are the ones that are going to have the worst outcome and that needed uh, to be treated more aggressively. Mike, do you think it's possible that your phenotype is a change in ability to respond? That if those patients who didn't respond to antibiotics had received them sooner, they could have responded, but there comes a point at which the patient no longer responds to antibiotics. The literature on pneumococcal septicemia, for example, shows that Caucus was very sensitive to penicillin until the patient became septicemic when all sensitivity was lost and it seemed like the antibiotic didn't make any difference. In, in order to verify or, or answer the question that, that you're asking, you'd really have to look at the duration of symptoms in these patients. And we had thought about this and we had actually looked at some charts to see, you know, how long had these patients been sick before they arrived in the emergency department. And it was, you know, we just weren't going to get reliable data on that. So it's really impossible to answer your question. I personally 
you know, think that it's less of a, a duration of, of illness or development of sept- septicemia question rather than just something fundamental about patients' immune system that places them in these these two different distinct phenotypes. But I think that's an excellent question, Peter. And the, and the only way to get to the bottom of this is really to look biologically uh, what's going on. So, you know, look at the biological side of things, which I really think is the next step in this area of research. Yeah, I think that's the next step for a lot of stuff where we're trying to individualize treatments and we're looking more at the host to see, are you going to be a responder or a non-responder that especially with sepsis, I think that's going to make a huge difference. You know, it's interesting with a, a paper like this, I think kind of cracks open another very large area of, of research to try to figure out how to treat a third of these patients that come in with sepsis. Uh, thinking of the Rivers trial, like you described earlier, that basically they found that if you recognize and aggressively treat these patients, that and instead of letting them languish in the hallway, that they do better and you make a reduction in mortality. And now you keep going through and you kind of can drill down on what are the specifics and what do you need as we find more more of the studies like proper and process but now I think what you've kind of revealed here is that there is a subset of these patients that are not going to be so easily recognized because I think one of the big things a lot of people say with sepsis treatment is that usual care has changed because people have started to recognize it more but now with this subset of patients you're saying this is the subset we need to be more concerned about because they are not as easy to recognize. And that kind of brings me back to my you know the concern for an infection paradigm and and really what I, what we're trying to say through our research is that instead of thinking about patients who in whom you suspect infection and and to me that kind of puts you into the probable category, we really need to expand our thinking into patients in whom sepsis or infection is possible. And you might say, well, you know, anything's possible. Anybody could be infected. But that's where the the sepsis risk factor comes in. So, So, you know, as our study showed, you know, Either these septic patients, they're 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 probably infected, you know, at triage, or they're possibly infected. But all of those patients have a risk factor, and that's really a way to to be more, you know, specific in our screening our screening tool. Yeah, and this is not the pneumococcal or haemophilus infections of the 80s and 90s where you would have a well child that showed up with a fever and eight hours later were critically ill in septic shock. This is really looking for some of these risk factors, like I, I believe you mentioned immunocompromised state, age greater than 85, some of these other risk factors that should force you to say, all right, could sepsis be a part of this? I'm going to investigate just to make sure, uh, what are some of the other risk factors that you recommend looking into a lot more closely? Yeah, so it's it's age 65 or greater, not not 85. It's 65. Sorry, we found is a good. That's okay, good cutoff, and that's kind of you know what's what's used in the literature. And then yeah, comorbidity. You know, we looked at we included those with diabetes, with functionally significant uh, CHF patients who are on uh, any type of immunocompromising uh, medications, so connective tissue diseases, rheumatoid arthritis uh, on medications. And of course, you know, cancer patients are extremely, extremely high risk. 
And then we expand to, you know, the patient who just comes in and looks really sick. So you're saying a you know, patient comes in super sick, they're an extremis, you know, anything's on the differential. It could be sepsis, could be cardiogenic shock. You know, these patients obviously need to be included in our risk, uh, our at-risk group. And like you're saying, Aaron, it's kind of like, what do you do with these patients at risk? Do you give them all antibiotics? And no, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that you identify this larger at-risk population for prioritized evaluation. So these are not patients who should be, you know, in the waiting room waiting to be evaluated. They should go directly to a care area and for prioritized diagnostics. And in a subset of those patients, yes, you're going to go ahead and pull the trigger on antibiotics if they're frankly hypotensive, for example, or if they're just, you know, obviously hypoperfused and, and, and ill. And, and another thing is, you know, fluid bolus as well. So, so you really have to decide in which of those patients to go ahead and, and give presumptive therapies, but but really identifying patients who, who need prioritized assessment and rapid diagnostics. I think it's really fascinating uh, thinking of these as different phenotypes because sepsis, much like cardiac arrest, is not one disease. It's kind of the physical manifestation of multiple diseases. Cancer would be another analogous disease of it's not one cancer that we're trying to treat. It's multiple different things that have a similar process, but not all behave the same. And so identifying these different phenotypes rather than just sepsis from pyelonephritis, sepsis from an abdominal source, sepsis from meningitis. I think these these different ways that patient re, patients respond to it, to management and treatment, is is really going to be a great next step to trying to keep them out of the intensive care unit, try to decrease mortality, and uh, try to get early and aggressive treatment. Absolutely, and and you know when you're looking into the to the to the future of early sepsis care and what we need to do, one thing like Peter was referring to is we need some objectivity and as to how we define a sepsis and you know for research you know we we rely heavily on ICD-10 codes which are very unreliable, you know our, our national quality work relies on this concept of a time zero or when you know sepsis starts in the emergency department which is often you know just based on documentation so we really need some some good objective definitions of of what you know sepsis is and and when it starts in the emergency department you know we need a good systems approach you know at some point in the future you know our our computer is going to tell us, "Hey, your your patient is at risk. They they have a risk score. You know, they either they're at risk for for sepsis, decompensation. You know, that score is going up in real time as more data comes in, vital signs, labs, etc. You know, uh, I think this is where sepsis is going as well. But but there's only so much you can." You can glean from from the EHR, from vital signs, and like I was saying, I really think that we need some some biological diagnostics that really tell us what's going on at the at the cellular level, and to try to help you know put patients in these different phenotypes and you know predict how they'll respond to therapies. I think we have never paid much attention to what enables people to be infected other than the advice your mother gave you to keep 
your head covered when it's raining. But there is a correlation. We know that uh, soldiers who are on forced marches in bad weather have a high incidence of infectious disease. But we don't know why you get infected and why another person doesn't and who is responsive and who isn't. And I, I think your work is very important because there may very well be patients who don't look sick who should have aggressive therapy and are the ones who belong in the ICU. And there may be patients who look sicker than hell who are responsive, who just need routine care, but it will be enough for them. Yeah, I think the the, the, the phenotyping that we'll be doing, you know, in the emergency department is to see which patients are responsive to which therapies is going to spill uh, into the, you know, the the pre-illness phase, Peter, and that there are obviously patients who are predisposed to developing severe infections, and, and we really don't know, you know, yet what characterizes those patients, and that's certainly the, the future. You know, with, with QSOFA and the different scores out there, the focus is on predicting mortality in patients who you think are infected and, and and I really don't think that's the question that that is really of utmost importance to us in the emergency department I think the question is amongst the many patients who present to you are sick uh you know, which of them actually have sepsis versus which of them don't have sepsis. So it's kind of a, a different outcome. It's it's sepsis versus not sepsis. And that's kind of what we're focused on in our research and, and in our diagnostics. You know, we feel this is kind of is a, a unique uh, approach to things. And, and like I say, it, it, this whole area of taking into account what the clinician thinks, you know, the clinician's impression, you know, is this patient probably infected or are they possibly infected? It really has not been addressed at all in the realm of sepsis. And right now we're actually doing a prospective study where we are asking the clinicians right after the initial evaluation what their suspicion is for for infection and for for sepsis you know do you think it's probable is it possible do you think this patient cl clearly does not have infection or definitely has infection I, th I think that's really going to to help you know elucidate how we're thinking uh, when we first see these patients and, and what proportion of of them that actually end up having sepsis you know is our initial impression actually well i'm not sure if this patient has sepsis they might um i think it's really going to be be revealing and, and helpful as we move forward and trying to uh to develop a clinical decision rule that's that's uh, useful yeah, I think that's great because most most all of the clinical decision rules out there have a caveat for or the provider has a high suspicion for the disease, in which case you get usually enough points to tip you into the at least moderate risk. And there, to my knowledge, there's not a clinical decision rule out there that has been able to supersede what the physician's gestalt is. But with the phenotype of a patient with vague symptoms, I 
think that that gets into a very interesting kind of conundrum that I'm really glad you're working on of uh, you've got a patient that is at that is at high risk that maybe doesn't present in a way that's suspicious and now we're trying to find a way to do what most of the CDRs will do which is to elevate your suspicion by just making you double check all right well let me run through real quick no I still don't really think this is sepsis or actually now that I think of this a bit further this very well could be sepsis and we should uh, be looking for it a little bit more absolutely it's important to know you know how many of these patients present in vague ways and it's important to know what to do with them and i think it's particularly important to stop looking for predictors of mortality because it doesn't help you if you find one and what you need is a predictor of severity of disease which is something totally different and i think that's what you're aiming towards and i couldn't have couldn't reinforce it more in its importance. No, exactly. I mean, when I have a predictor of high mortality in, in, in real time, uh, I'm like, well, what do I do with that? Do I put all these patients in, in the ICU? Well, you know, we can't necessarily do that, but we really want, you know, tests that are actionable. And I feel the first action is, you know, do I give antibiotics or not? You know, like you were saying before, Peter, it's like there are no guidelines really on who we should be giving antibiotics to presumptively prior to definitive diagnostics. Their surviving sepsis campaign recommends broad spectrum antibiotics, you know, for those who you suspect are infected and have organ dysfunction. But like I said, a third of these patients to a half, you're not even going to suspect infection. And half of our septic population, their blood pressure is perfectly normal at, at triage. So it's we really need guidance in this area. Yeah. Yeah, to make a uh, probably a poor corollary quote, there are known knowns and unknown knowns and unknown unknowns, and that's pretty much what we deal with on a daily basis in the emergency department. And I'm glad someone is helping us look into the unknown unknowns. 